Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is Miracles and Messiahs, How Jesus Best Fits Prophecy. Why do we believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? What's our evidence? Taking a look at contemporary miracle workers like Honey the Circle Drawer and Hanina Bendoza, Jesus of Nazareth stands out as an exceptional healer and exorcist. Taking our cue from ancient Jewish interpretations of Isaiah 53, we can see how Jesus of Nazareth best fits the prophesied suffering servant. These two lines of inquiry intertwine in the historical Jesus to produce a compelling case that he really is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. This morning I'd like to share on the subject miracles and messiahs and talk about how Jesus best fits prophecy. And in particular, I'd like to tell you the point of what I'm saying because I've dug up a lot of information, and uh, in case the point gets lost, I'll just say it up front, and then we'll say it again at the end, and hopefully at least that is clear, all right? And it's just three words, Jesus is awesome. That's basically all I'm trying to say, Uh, but I have my own way of saying that, you have your way of saying that, and this is how I am going to go about that. So the first thing is Isaiah 35. What I want to do is look at miracles, and then I want to look at messiahs. And I want to look at uh, uh, prophecies of uh, miracles. Then I want to look at prophecies of messiahs, or messianic prophecies. And compare Jesus to other people that were around in his time. Both before his time and after his time. Um, But around that general time, 20 centuries ago. So to start off, Isaiah 35 reads, The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with the anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, Your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And then verse 5 is really where I want to focus. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. This here is what I would call a kingdom prophecy. It's a prophecy of the age to come when God makes everything wrong with the world right. And at that time, part of what's wrong with the world is, is deafness and blindness and lameness, these sorts of things, and that in that age to come, there's not going to be these problems anymore. Um, take a look at chapter 61, Isaiah 61. Another similar prophecy Actually, all, all the prophecies I'm going to this morning are in Isaiah. Isaiah is just awesome. There's really just so much in it. Uh, but I'm going to chapter 61 now of Isaiah, and I want to show you a second prophecy 
that involves miracles, right? Because if you're blind and you suddenly get back your sight, that's a miracle, right? If you can't walk and then suddenly God heals you, that's a miracle. Uh, if, you're, if you can't speak, you're, you're uh, mute, then you get healed, that's a miracle, right? So in Isaiah 61 is a second cluster of kingdom prophecies that involve some miracles. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild ancient ruins. And it goes on from there, and it talks about how foreigners are going to take care of the land for, on behalf of Israel, and how the, uh, these people whom God redeems at the end of time will be the priests of God, all of them, not just like a a few of them, but they will all be priests of God. Really fascinating, beautiful prophecy of the kingdom age, Isaiah 61. But uh, I want to focus on this earlier part where it talks about proclaiming liberty and freedom and binding up the brokenhearted, that part right there. But before I get into all that, I want to look at two miracle workers, uh, one comes from the century before Christ. The other comes from the same century as Christ. And the first is Honey, the circle drawer. Are you ready? So, some Christians started, just recently wrote a book about this guy. And so there's, uh, there's good, there are good images for, for him on Google right now, which is sweet when you're preaching on Honey, the circle drawer, which uh, I happen to be doing right now. So there's a picture of him uh, taken 21 centuries ago. And... Uh, so anyhow, Honey, he was, uh, he was uh, someone that people thought had a connection with God. There was a drought, there was no rain for a time, and uh, people were really worried. And this is ancient Israel, century before Christ. And they came to Honey and they said, Honey, would you pray for us? We need rain. It's the winter, we've had no rains. We're really, we're really in trouble. So Honey said to them, well, this is what you should do. Take all your clay ovens inside and I'll pray. And that would be an act of faith, because if you left your clay oven outside, it would soften in the rain, right? So it's basically everybody agreeing to have faith. So he prays, and nothing happens. He, you know, he stands, he prays, nothing happens. And so then something interesting, this is from the, the Jewish Talmud. He says, this is what he said next. He drew a circle around himself and said, O oh Lord of the world, your children have turned their faces to me, for I am like a son of the house before you, I swear by your great name that I will not stir from here until you have pity on your children. So he drew a circle around himself and said, I'm not leaving until you make it rain. And so it started to sprinkle. So Honey said, not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill the cisterns, pits, and caverns. And so it started pouring violently. So Honey prayed again, not for such rain have I prayed, but for the rain of goodwill, blessing, and graciousness. And then he got a moderate rain. That's Honey. Then we have Hanina Bendoza. Hanina Bendoza. And he comes from around the same time as Christ, actually. 
And uh, so he's got a whole bunch of miracles attributed to him. He uh, one day was on his way home, and it was pouring rain. And he said to God, Master of the universe, the world is at ease, but Hanina is in distress. And the rain stopped. And then he got home, and he's prayed again, and he said, Master of the universe, the whole world is in distress, and Hanina is at ease, and the rain started again. So that's pretty impressive. Number two miracle for Hanina is miraculous bread. So Hanina was really poor, just dirt poor. He couldn't even afford flour. And so his wife, so that they wouldn't be embarrassed in the sight of the neighbors, used to throw twigs and, and branches into the oven so that on the Sabbath Eve, there would be smoke coming out of their oven, and everyone would think they're baking bread for the Sabbath day, but they are too poor to have bread. But she wanted to like, keep up appearances so that Hanina wouldn't be you know, put to shame for being so poor. And one time, a bad neighbor came over, and she wanted to expose the poverty of this family. And uh, the wife of Hanina was embarrassed, and this, this woman came in and opened the oven to, to show the world that these people were just so wretchedly poor. And miraculously, there were all these loaves of bread in the oven. That's number two. Number three, the wife said to him, how long shall we go on suffering so much? In other words, honey, I'm tired of being poor. And so he says, well, what do you want me to do? And she says, well, you know, you stopped the rain, you got the, the loaves in the oven, pray for some money, right? <laughs> pray and it will be given to you. So he prayed and a hand reached out and gave him a golden table leg. That night he dreamt, and in the age to come, in the paradise that uh, we all look forward to, he saw a great feast with all these people eating. And everyone had three-legged tables except for him and his wife. Theirs only had two legs. And he told his wife about this. And he's like, you know, should we suffer shame for all eternity eating at a two-legged table while everyone else has three just so we can have our comfort now? And she said, no, that you're right. That's, that's no good. Pray that it will be taken away. And it dematerialized. Then we have number four, which I call sour oil. And this is uh, when his daughter was sad one day because she... Um, well, she said, my oil can got mixed up with my vinegar can, and I kindled of it the Sabbath light. Anybody ever try to burn vinegar? I don't think it burns. So she put vinegar instead of oil into the candle. It didn't work. And so Hanina Bendoza says, my daughter, why should this trouble you? He who had commanded the oil to burn will also command the vinegar to burn. And the vinegar burned. Number five out of six. All right, just so you don't get... Too worried here. I'm not going to 200 here. I'm just going to six. Number five is the story about his goats. One time, someone accused his goats of causing destruction. Bad pets, you know. Right. And so Hanina says, If they indeed do damage, may bears devour them. But if not, may they each of them at evening time bring home a bear on their horns. And at evening time, each of his goats brought home a bear on his horns. Number six, short beams. A woman neighbor of Hanina was building a house, but the beams would not reach the walls. And she asked him for help, and he prayed, May your beams reach! And they, the beams grew a cubit. 
and touch the walls. So that's, that's, uh, that's Honey. He's got power over nature, right? Because he can pray and it rains and people are very impressed by that, right? And then you have Hanina Mendoza who, let's face it, he's a powerhouse. I mean, if any of these are true, that's, I mean, that's more than I got on my, uh, my record, right? Okay. So then we start to consider Jesus in the context of his, of his uh, generation. And we find not one, not six, but 37 distinct miracles, uh, miracle incidents, okay? And uh, just to go through a few of these, uh, I want to point out that miracle number nine that Jesus performs is healing a paralyzed man. And if you have recalled in Isaiah 35, it says, then the lame will leap like a deer, right? And uh, number 11 here, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead in Nain. This was a funeral procession. This widow has already lost her husband. She now lost her son. And she's in a funeral procession. Jesus encounters it, touches the coffin, tells her don't cry, and then raises her son from the dead. He, sta- he sits upright. He gives it him back. to now, that's, now that reminds me of where it says to comfort all who mourn. Right? I mean, the best comfort you could give somebody grieving is to give them back the person that died. Right? I mean, it doesn't really get better than that. That's what he did. And then uh, second page of his miracles as we continue on. Miracle number 17, Jesus heals a man unable to speak. In Isaiah 35 again it says, And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Check. Jesus heals a man born blind, miracle 26. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Check. Then we get to the last page of his miracles here. And we see that Jesus heals a woman bent double to proclaim liberty to the captives. In fact, when Jesus healed this woman, can you imagine this, that your spine is so deformed that you can't sit upright at all? You can't, you cannot, you're looking at the floor at all times because you're, you're, you're bent double. Eighteen years she was like that. Eighteen years. And Jesus said that Satan had kept her in this bond 18 years. That's captivity. And he proclaimed liberty to her. Now, uh, there are also these other incidents, you know, where Jesus does a bunch of healings all at once. And I didn't know how to categorize them, so we just, we just included them as like one incident. But this is an example. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Imagine that. They line up. This is not like just a random thing here and a ra- oh, I, you know, my vinegars and my oil. You know, this is a line of sick people and, and, and lunatics and everyone that's got something wrong with them, that somebody thinks has something wrong with them at least, is going to bring them to the healer and Jesus heals them all, right? And it says that demons also were coming out of many shouting, you are the son of God, but rebuking them. He would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ or the Messiah. In John 20, it says in verse 30, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You hear that? Many other signs Jesus did, but they're not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. 
That's why these miracles are here. The Son of God, in that believing, you may have life in His name. Another place in John, right at the end, John 21, 25, it says, There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So that's Jesus as a miracle worker, just to compare Him to other miracle workers around His time. Now I want to look at some Messiah prophecies. In particular, I want to look at chapter 11 and then chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 11 contains a beautiful prophecy that I think a lot of people tried to enact. There were a lot of people who, who took at least some aspects of this prophecy and said, this is me, and then gathered support and marched and tried to take the victory. And I'm going to show you some examples of these messiahs in just a minute. But Isaiah chapter 11 we read, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. Verse 4, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. Sounds like a good ruler, huh? This is somebody that's depending on the Spirit of God to make decisions to such a degree that he doesn't get it wrong. He he doesn't oppress the poor, and he doesn't just take their side every time. He's judging with fairness. Um, Verse 4, But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and so on. And he will strike the earth. You see that at the end? He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. So he's also a warrior who achieves victory, right? I mean, this is fancy talk, but with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It's like he's killing people, right? Okay. Or he just has really bad breath, but, you know, that's a little too literal. Verse 5, Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. Sounds like an awesome ruler, right? The first thing it says is that he is a shoot from the stem of Jesse. He's a descendant of Jesse. Jesse's a famous person whose son, David, was the second king of Israel, the great David, uh, king of Israel. And so this one is going to be a shoot that's going to spring out of that same lineage. And he's going to do this awesome stuff. And he is going to really, he's going to bring righteousness. He's going to bring fairness. The oppression will end finally. Right? I mean, that's something to be excited about. Now let's go to 53. Isaiah 53. The finger's a little workout this morning. These two prophecies are in tension. They say, they say very different things. Isaiah 11 says he's going to conquer. With his, the breath of his lips, he's going to slay the wicked. Um, he's going to establish justice. You, you cannot establish justice if people don't listen to you when you make decisions. Right? So people are listening to him. He's going to say, oh, this is how it is. We have a grievance here. We've got this party over here. And then uh, over here, this other party. And they're both saying, and I'm, and I'm going to decide, okay, I'm going to go with these guys. They're, they're in the right these Bodners over here, they're just uh, conniving. No, I'm just kidding. Bodners are wonderful. 
right? That's what, that's what justice is. That's what a judge does, right? A judge makes these decisions. So-and-so did this. No, he didn't. He did this. All right, what are we going to do? We go to court, and they decide for us. Then Isaiah 53 is like the exact opposite. This is somebody that suffers, somebody that people don't listen to, someone that everyone thinks is cursed by God, and someone that dies. So let's actually get a running start. 52.13. 52.13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's the happiest part of this whole thing, by the way. Right? My servant is going to be high and exalted and lifted up. And then we switch suddenly to verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle or startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. So this person is going to be high and lifted up. And then he is going to be marred, beaten so severely that it says here, more than any man his form than the sons of men, and that it's going to just startle people. They're going to, they're going to just be shocked by this. Chapter 53, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. All right? Now, a tender shoot is not somebody who grows up in the palace. Right? A tender shoot is, is somebody who's growing up in obscurity. Look at the next part of that verse there. It says, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He, th- this suffering servant is not going to be raised in the lap of luxury with the silver spoon in his mouth. He is going to be somebody who comes, it's like a, a, like a, little, a little shoot in a parched ground, right? It's a little, little stem that springs up, as opposed to a great oak tree, Right? So he's got humble beginnings. And he's not, he's not some beauty queen. You know what I mean? Like, there's not, he's not a, a movie star. Pete comes in the room and everyone's like, oh. No. To identify Jesus, you know what they had to do towards the end of his life? Judas had to signal who he was with a kiss in the garden. Otherwise, he looked like everybody else. If he was a foot taller with blonde, long hair, I don't think he would have had to do that. Or if he had a halo around his head all the time, you wouldn't have to identify him with a kiss. You'd be like, hey, it's the guy that glows in the dark. Right? <laughs> he looked like everybody else. Um, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs, or another translation is sickness, he himself bore. In our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to do what? Fall on him. 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Those of you who have read the crucifixion and the trial leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, light bulbs are going off, right? Bells ringing, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's Jesus. That's Jesus, right? That's what everybody thinks when they read this. Or at least all Christians. You know, that's got to be Jesus. Look at all this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Verse 8, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Ladies and gentlemen, if you're cut off from the land of the living, you are dead. Right? You are dead. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Here we have somebody who stands in the place for others. Right? Whereas Isaiah 11, we had a conqueror a judge, someone who could slay the wicked, right? And in Isaiah 53, you've got what? Someone who suffers on behalf of the wicked. Seem like two very different things. I can understand why there was so much confusion. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, verse 9, yet with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. So there's still hope here. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to what? To death, and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded, he prayed for, the transgressors. I don't even have to show you Matthew 27. I don't even have to bring you to the end of the Gospel of John, right? You've read this before, or you've heard about it at least, or you saw the movie, and you know that this is a description of Jesus who suffered on... This was written hundreds of years before Christ. A lot of people estimate about 700 years before Christ. And it's not like his disciples rigged this thing so that it would all fulfill the prophecy. These are Roman soldiers that are, that are doing this. And the Roman soldiers don't listen to what their conquered peoples suggest they do to fulfill prophecy. They don't. So that's Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 53. Now let's take a look at um, a few Jewish commentators over the years, because there's, there's actually a lot of debate. Isaiah 53 is very controversial, because it's so... It's, it so points to Jesus that um, people would like to say, oh, it doesn't really refer to Jesus. It refers to Israel as a whole or, or something else or some, some other person. Um, regardless, we're going to hold Jesus to the side. My point to you was that this is a, a, a Messiah prophecy, right? A Messianic prophecy, right? Now, here I want to show you Jewish people throughout the centuries that also believed Isaiah 53 was messianic. It had to do with the Messiah, not just Israel as a nation. So I, I just want to run through these with you. They're, 
they're really important, I think. This is from the Babylonian Talmud in the year 180 or so. You know, they're, no, they're not exactly sure. It reads, the Messiah, what is his name? The rabbis say, the leprous one. Weird. Those of the house of rabbis say, the sick one. As it is said, surely he hath borne our sicknesses. So that's Isaiah 53. So they're saying, well, who is the Messiah? You say, oh, he's a sick one. What do you mean he's a sick one? Well, it says he will bear our sicknesses. I'm not saying I agree with the interpretation and all these. I'm saying that this Jewish authority believed that Isaiah 53 referred to the Messiah. Here's a second one. The Targum of Jonathan from around the year 200. Behold, my servant Messiah shall prosper. He shall be high and increase and be exceedingly strong. This is a quotation from Isaiah 52, verse 13. Except in our version, it doesn't say the word Messiah there. They interpret it that way. This is a midrash uh, called Ruth Rabbah from about the year 850. It says another explanation of Ruth 2.14. He is speaking of the king Messiah. Come hither, draw near to the throne and eat of the bread. That is the bread of the kingdom. And dip thy morsel in the vinegar. This refers to the chastisements, as it is said, but he was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquity. So here's another Jewish example of literature that identifies the Messiah with Isaiah 53. Rabbi Moshe Maimonides, around the year 1200, one of the the most famous uh, Jewish rabbis of uh, the Middle Ages. What is the manner of the Messiah's coming? Good question. There shall rise up one of whom none have known before, and signs and... These people don't believe in Jesus. This is why this is so fascinating. If you already believed in them, there's no point here. But they don't believe in them, and yet this is their interpretation based on what we read, the Messiah prophecies, of what the Messiah is going to be. He's going to have signs and wonders. You see this here? Signs and wonders, which they shall see performed by him, will be the proofs of his true origin. And Isaiah speaks similarly of the time when he shall appear without father or mother or family being known, from obscurity, right? He came up as a sucker before him and as a root out of the dry earth. Again, quoting Isaiah 53, saying this is a description of the Messiah. This is a Zohar. It's a Kabbalistic document uh, written down by Moses de Leon in the year 1290. It reads, he was wounded for our transgressions. This is really an out there interpretation. Wait, wait to read this one. This, there is in, a, in the Garden of Eden... Okay. a place called the palace of the sons of sickness. This palace, the Messiah then enters and summons every sickness, every pain, every chastisement of Israel. They all come and rest upon him. And were it not that he had thus lightened them off Israel and taken them upon himself, there had been no man able to bear Israel's chastisements for the transgression of the law. And this is that which is written, Surely our sicknesses he hath carried. Whew. That's out there. But my point is, here's another Jewish authority that identifies Isaiah 53 as messianic, as to do with the Messiah. All right, this is the last one. Moshe Kohen Ibn Crispin. 1375. He writes, I am pleased to interpret it, talking about Isaiah 53, in accordance with the teaching of our rabbis, of the King Messiah. That's pretty clear, right? I'm pleased to interpret it as the king messiah 
This prophecy was delivered by Isaiah at the divine command for the purpose of making known to us something about the nature of the future Messiah. Who is to come and deliver Israel and his life from the day when he arrives at the discretion until his or at discretion until his advent as a redeemer? In order that if anyone should arise claiming to be himself the Messiah, we may reflect and look to see whether we can observe in him any resemblance to the traits described here. If there is any such resemblance, then we may believe oh, wrong way, that he is the Messiah, our righteousness. But if not, we cannot do so. So what, he's, what this Moshe or Moses is saying is that we can look at Isaiah 53 and that should tell us something about this Messiah who is to come. And so if somebody, say J.R., claims to be the Messiah, we can look at J.R.'s life and we can say, well... Do we see in his life these things that it says? And if we do, then maybe he is. But if not, then he's definitely not, right? That's what this guy is saying here in 1375. The source for this, these uh, documents is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, according to Jewish interpreters, conveniently available online for free because it's from 1877. All right, so summarizing. We have the Babylonian Talmud in 180, the Targum of Jonathan in 200, the Midrash Ruth Rabbah in 850, the Rabbi Moshe Maimonides in 1200, the Zohar written by Moses de Leon in 1290, and Moshe Ibn Crispin in 1375 all identify Isaiah 53 as a prophecy about the Messiah. Now, if you go home and read Isaiah 53, you're not going to see the word Messiah there. It doesn't say Messiah. It says my servant. That's why this is significant. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that all Jews believe that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. They don't. I challenge you to find one in the state of New York that believes that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah that's not already a Christian. Right? But here's the point. There have been some reading this throughout the years that have seen this, and now we compare Jesus with other messiahs. Are you ready? Well, even if you're not ready, here I go. These, these are... These are, these are fascinating, I think. Athranges, he's uh, four years before Christ, right? Herod the Great had died, revolts broke out because the new guy in charge, Herod Archelaus, was just a total loser and he was terrible at ruling over things. So this guy, Athranges, he was a shepherd and he was really tall and he was really strong and he had four brothers that were also tall and strong and so he declared himself king. And he um, went out, and for three years, he was successful, killing Roman soldiers, killing sympathizers with the old Jewish king, Herod the Great. And he even attacked a Roman company at Emmaus. He killed 40 of the best Roman soldiers. And then, eventually, the Romans defeated him, and he had to, his brothers all got killed, and he had to turn himself over to Archelaus, who's the guy he was trying to get rid of. Um, and he lost. Number two, Judah the Galilean. Around the year A.D. 6, the Romans got rid of Herod Archelaus because he, like I said before, was such a loser. Um, he, was just a bad, he was just a bad ruler. Every decision he made caused a riot, a revolution. Um, and so what the, what the Roman Empire decided to do is, you know, those Israelites, they're, they're, always, they're always causing trouble. You know, let's just, let's just stop ruling through Israel. Let's just rule directly. 
we'll send our own governor, our own Roman governor down to the capital, to Jerusalem, and we'll get the job done right. So they sent this guy named um, Caponius, and the first thing he does, like most governors, is he raises the taxes, right? Th- some things haven't changed, right? So he established new taxes. So Judah the Galilean says, uh, what did he say? This taxation is no more than slavery. And he shouts for freedom. The people believe him. He gets a large revolt following him. And um, he says that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. And the fear of death couldn't even convince them to call any man Lord. And eventually the Romans caught up to Judah and killed him. And his followers scattered. The Samaritan prophet. Moving along in time, 30 years later. See, now, this, this uh, first two was before Christ's ministry, right? The Samaritan prophet is just a little after Christ's ministry. You see that? The Samaritan prophet stirred up a mob in Samaria and organized a march to Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans, they believe Mount Gerizim is some sacred mountain. And this guy, we don't even know his name. We just call him the Samaritan prophet. This guy said, you know, if you come with me to Mount Gerizim, I will show you where Moses deposited the hidden, buried vessels. So they, he, a lot of people were like, oh, this guy sounds legit. Let's go with him. So he leads a march. He, he leads a march, and he, and he settles at a town right next to the mountain to sort of like amp up for the, the mountain climb and these mysterious vessels that no one's ever heard of. And um, while he's there in this town right next to the mountain, Word spreads, and everyone gets really excited, and a whole bunch more people join his little march that he's going to make. And uh, a certain Roman governor finds out about it. Maybe you heard of him, Pontius Pilate. He wasn't too happy about it, and he did not let the guys climb the mountain. He sent up his soldiers immediately to the town, captured the town, took many prisoners, and put to death the leaders. So ends the Samaritan prophet. Thutis, year 45. He led followers to the Jordan River. Check this guy out. He said, if you will follow me to the Jordan River, I will command the river and it will part. And people were like, Thutis, you might be, you might be what we've been looking for. We need a deliverer. Because you know who else did this? Joshua. Joshua did this. He came and he went to the Jordan River just to cross over into the Promised Land and with a whole army, and he was going to, he conquered it, right? He conquered the Promised Land. Thutis is going to do that now. Um, the Roman governor at his time, a guy named Fadus, sent a detachment of horsemen and overtook Thutis in his rebellion unexpectedly and killed many and took many alive. They took Thutis alive and then cut off his head and brought it back to Jerusalem. The Egyptian prophet, the year 58. Uh, Josephus says this guy had 30,000 followers. Even like on Twitter, that's a lot, right? I mean, geez, 30,000 followers. Uh, he gathered in the wilderness, and he led his followers up to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is right across from Jerusalem. From the Mount of Olives, you can see the city of Jerusalem. And he said that he would command and the walls of Jerusalem would fall down to the ground. Now, who did that? Not Jesus. Joshua. Joshua, remember he marched around Jericho, and then the walls came down? So this guy's like, he's reading his Bible, he's like, I can do that. And so he gets 30,000 people, they amass on the Mount Olives, and he's, 
I don't know if he even got to command because as soon as the Romans get any whiff of this kind of messianic behavior, they send out the soldiers every time. Right? So the soldiers come, they march up, a great number of horsemen and footmen, they kill 400, they take 200 alive, the Egyptian escapes, and nobody ever hears from him again. At least he lived, right? I mean, that's compared to these other guys. And then in 69, you have Simon Bargiora. He's a competent general. This guy, this guy is pretty serious. He attracts 40,000 soldiers, and that number is a little more certain than the last guy. 40,000 soldiers. He promises liberty to slaves and awards to the free. And at that time, the Jewish leadership had already kicked out the Romans, and they were already in a little revolt of their own, or actually it was a big revolt of their own. And Simon's like, I should be in charge of this. I should be king. And so what he does, uh, or what the leadership in Jerusalem do, is they, they get nervous about this Simon character, and they're like, you know what, how are we going to stop this guy? Because we, we, we kind of know what we're doing, and the Romans are going to come, and they're, we're going to fight a battle and everything else. But this guy, he's going to screw everything up. I know, I know. Let's kidnap his wife. Let's kidnap his wife, and then we'll tell him that he has to do what we want, which is leave us alone, or we'll kill her. So that's what they do. They kidnap Simon's wife. And uh, they say to him, you better not come into Jerusalem with your soldiers. You leave us alone, and she'll live. So what does Simon do? He gets really angry and marches on Jerusalem and captures anybody that's around the city or coming out of the city and starts cutting their hands off and torturing them and freaks out the people inside the city to such a degree that they're like, all right, just take your wife. <laughs> they give her back. <laughs> and so he marches on the city. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. This is all, these are all historical things that happened. So he marches on the city. A little while later, he takes the city and he, he prints his own coins, or he mints his own coins, and it says, the redemption of Zion on his coins. That's, that's pretty cool, huh? Redemption of Zion. The Romans surround the city and for five months besieged it and eventually took the city. And where was Simon when they took the city? Well, he found some stone cutters. And he went down. There was a cave. He went down in this cave with these stone cutters and their iron tools and enough provisions to last a little while. And they started tunneling. And the rock was harder than they thought it was, and they didn't get very far, and they ran out of food, so that escape plan didn't work. So he had to come back up to the surface, and he put on his white frock and his purple robe and buttoned it all up and said, where is the Roman captain? And so the soldiers immediately brought him to the Roman captain. Um, what was that guy's name? Terentius Rufus. And uh, Terentius Rufus brought him to Rome, where he was marched through the city of Rome in a parade, at the end of which he was thrown from the Tarpian Rock near the Temple of Jupiter. It's an 80-foot drop, and he died. Simon ben Kosaba, last one. Last one, I mean, other than uh, the, the one that we're all cheering for. Uh, Simon ben Kosaba, also called Simon bar Kokhba, they, he changed his name to... Bar Kokhba because it means son of the star and there's a prophecy in Numbers that a star will rise from Judah and he thought he was that star. And so he led a revolution in the year 132. He minted coins. On one side it said Simon, Prince of Israel. And on the other side, year one of the redemption of Israel. 
<laughs> he persecuted Christians and killed them if they wouldn't deny Jesus as the Christ. And he had 200,000 insurgents at his command. He insisted that young recruits... This is just unbelievable. He insisted that young recruits chop off a finger to join, to prove their valor. So his army, everybody's missing, like, a finger, right? I was thinking, like, which finger would I pick, you know? But probably the left hand, because I don't really... I don't really use the left hand much for, like, a sword when I'm fighting people. So, anyhow, after three years, the Roman losses were heavy, but eventually they overtook Bar Kokhba and killed him. All right? So, these are the, the list of leaders of Messianic movements from around the time of Christ. Right? What are they all doing? They're all doing Isaiah 11. All of them. They're... they're, they're trying to take by force. They're trying to use the breath of their lips to slay the wicked, right? To use the prophetic language. How many of them are doing Isaiah 53? How many of them are coming in and saying, no, no, let me take your sins. Let me take your sickness. Let me suffer in your place. Not one of them, right? Let Let me just mention the last one. Here's another Messiah, Jesus. He rides a donkey into Jerusalem in prophetic enactment of a prophecy in Zechariah. Everyone hails him king of the Jews. He disturbs the temple. The Roman Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, gets word that here is another one of these guys. We need to get rid of him. We need to do something with him. And you know that the details of the story are a little more complicated than that because there were a lot of jealous Jewish religious leaders involved and everything else, right? And uh, so they, they crucified Jesus. And what, do they, what does the sign say above his head? Why do the Romans think they're crucifying him? They think he thinks he's the king of the Jews. So that's why they're going to kill him. But here's the crazy thing. And this is the genius of, of God, the genius of his plan for his son, right? The genius is, he really was the king of the Jews, and he's doing Isaiah 53 first, and then he's going to come back and do Isaiah 11. Right? He's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to take the sins, the sickness, all of it on himself, and then, having suffered to that degree, he dies. And then God raises him from the dead, and he's coming back to do the rest of the job. You see how that works? Right? So now, in light of all of the different uh, people we could compare Jesus to from his own time, (sighs) Honey, right? Drew a line in the sand, said, I'm not leaving until you answer my prayer. You could try that. I don't know if it will work for you, but like, that's that's what it says he did. Right? Or Hanina Bendoza, who said, let them reach, and they stretched a cubit, right? To all of these knuckleheads, right? These are all, these are all the, the people you want to compare him to, people in his own time. It's embarrassing. Jesus is embarrassing. He's embarrassingly good, right? 37, right? Honey's got one. Hanina Bendoza has six. Jesus has 37, and like a couple of those 37 are like, he healed everybody in line all night long, right? 
That's like embarrassing. It's like too good, right? The, the miracles that he performs. And, and what's so cool about Jesus with his miracles is that he's not a show-off. He's not like, all right, I'll heal you, but uh, it's going to cost you. You know, or I'll heal you, but you need, to, you need to like me on Facebook and then get all of your social network on board, right? He's the opposite. He's like, look, I'm going to heal you, but you need to be quiet about it. That's what Jesus would do, right? Right? So that's how he handled the miracles. How did he handle the Messiah stuff? He didn't, he didn't walk around saying, I am the Messiah. Follow me, and I will you know, destroy the Romans. He didn't do that. They believed he was the Messiah, and as soon as Peter said it, Jesus said, Shh. We don't want, to, we don't want this getting out yet. This, the, the time is not yet. You know, we'll get there. Until it was time to, to fully explain that when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. And then it was a time of rejoicing. And these prophecies about him coming back, they all hinge on the resurrection. They all hinge on the fact that God raised him from the dead. And the fact that Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead is a fact that none of these guys even claim. They didn't even claim it. We don't have to disprove it. There's nothing to disprove. You know, did, did, did Muhammad claim to be raised from the dead? Did Buddha claim to be raised from the dead? Did Sabbatai Savay or, or the Branch Davidian guy? I mean, they didn't even claim it. There's nothing to even talk about, right? Jesus is raised from the dead. And that explains why there are all these people that are willing to die for the fact that he is the true Messiah later on. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to do Isaiah 11. And Isaiah 2, and Isaiah 9, and Daniel 7, and Daniel 2, and all the other prophecies that talk about how he's going to establish justice and peace for all. And that, I think, is why Jesus is awesome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful example of your son. We thank you for how you have uh, given him to us how you empowered him to do these miracles, how you laid before him your plan. He didn't just grab a bunch of people and force the issue. What he did was he trusted you even to the end. And even when you said to him that he had to go through the suffering and he prayed for that cup to pass from him, he still decided, he volunteered because he knew your love for us. Father, we ask that you help us to be proud of Jesus. He's not just some mythical religious figure. He's a, he's a real person. And he is incredibly awesome. We thank you for him. We thank you for this day in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.